0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Expanding Role of Neuroimaging in Alzheimer's Disease Diagnosis and Management. Is radiology prepared for new challenges? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KZA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hi, my name is Tammy Bensinger, and I'm from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. I'd like to welcome all of you to this educational activity on the role of neuroimaging in Alzheimer's disease. Joining me in this discussion are Dr. Greg Day from the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and Dr. Jerry Baracos from the California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, California. Let's start with an overview of the evolving world of Alzheimer's disease management. Our topic today is the expanding role of neuroimaging in Alzheimer's disease diagnosis and management. Is radiology prepared for new challenges? So I think we're all very aware now of the the growing risk and burden of Alzheimer's disease in the U.S. and around the world. Um, Currently we have about 6.2 million Americans who live with a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and this increases with age. Um, and the population is projected to continue to grow to almost 88 million Americans affected by the year 2050 with uh, cost of dementia care um, already reaching on the order of 355 billion if you look at all of the components of it. Um, Now when we talk about dementia it's a diagnosis with both cognitive or behavioral symptoms that interfere with the ability to function at work or usual activities, represent a decline from a previous level of functioning, and are not otherwise explained. The National Institute on Aging and Alzheimer's Association have developed a joint set of diagnostic recommendations which were published in 2011, and these really focus on a shared language and staging that can be used initially in the research world, and thinking about the stages of Alzheimer's that happen before you reach that dementia, which include a stage of preclinical disease, as well as a stage of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, which we see before dementia. And if if we look at this, um, at the way that we're starting to think about how it comes together, dementia is really that very, very last stage of the disease with Um, changes happening years and years before that, um, which include proteinopathies, so protein deposits in the brain in the form of beta amyloid plaques, as well as tau pathologies with neurofibrillary tangles, and brain structural changes that we can measure on an MRI as atrophy, and all of these things coming together before that dementia happens. for a long time, what we've had um, for disease-modifying therapies, or DMTs, in the past, it's been um, cholinesterase inhibitors and memetine which can treat the symptoms, but they don't address the underlying pathophysiology and they don't affect disease progression. And After nearly two decades of multiple disappointing trial results without new Alzheimer therapies, um, many studies have been recently published focusing on monoclonal antibody therapies that reduce the beta amyloid. And these can bind to the oligomers or other forms of amyloid, such as the plaque, and promote um, clearance from the cells. The first approved anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody therapy for Alzheimer's is aducanumab which was approved in June of 2021 under an accelerated approval pathway with the United States Food and Drug Administration. And this was based on a surrogate or intermediate endpoint with a reduction in the plaque on the brain and a requirement for further trials to verify the clinical benefit. Educanumab is a monthly intravenous infusion and it's titrated over a period of several months until the final dose of recommended of 10 milligrams per kilogram is reached. And it's indicated for patients with um, mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer dementia. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the trials behind this. So these were the phase three EMERGE and ENGAGE trials. Uh, the EMERGE trials met their um, primary and secondary endpoints on high doses, but engaged failed to meet that clinical outcome that they were looking for. But there were um, multiple ad hoc, post hoc analyses that were performed um, looking at subsets of the the patients and starting to see um, with this analysis some adjusted changes um, that were looking, starting to look a little bit promising. But the other really important thing, especially for radiologists to understand, is that there can be some pretty serious side effects in the brain that we can identify on MRI scans. And these are the amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, or ARIA. So ARIA was seen on MRI scans in about 41% of the patients in that high-dose group. Um, with an ARIA-E, meaning um, edema and effusions, in about 35%. And the symptoms of patients with ARIA-E include things like headache, confusion, dizziness, nausea. And in 1.4% of the cases, these were serious um, clinical symptoms that occurred. The ARIA is dose-dependent. It's common with higher amounts. Um, And it's also higher in participants who are APOE4 carriers. Anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies are being used as a really promising line of therapy for multiple studies, which include multiple drugs such as donanemab, gatinarumab, lecanemab, solonazumab, and we may be seeing more of these in the future. And all of these um, do have risk of development of these brain MRI findings of ARIA. Um, and so, since we now have one disease-modifying therapy approved and others moving forward, a, a really important question for us to be thinking about is, is our healthcare system ready? So, um, you know, this is, a, as I mentioned, a very large population that we're studying. Um, and there is a lot of concern that the demand for diagnostic testing in these patients, um, whether it be um, an amyloid PET scan, a lumbar puncture, other tests that might be used to, to confirm that amyloid diagnosis for Alzheimer disease, it could easily overwhelm our system capacity. Um, and we also know that um, we have now experienced during COVID-19 a very painful example of how um, our system doesn't have a lot of capacity built in for unexpected surges. So this is something a lot of us have been thinking about lately is um, if there is a growing demand, um, particularly For the radiology field, um, how are we going to be able to address that? Now um, finally, I just want to to focus on this really critical need we have moving from care to cure. So, you know, in the past we didn't we didn't have, as I mentioned, treatments for Alzheimer's that we thought were going to modify the course of disease very significantly. Um, and now, now we're going to be looking at this, but we're going to be needing to think about it more along the lines of how we think perhaps of our oncology clinics or other diseases where we have diagnostic testing, whether that's with lumbar punctures, PET scans. We're gonna be needing specialized treatment centers such as infusion delivery. Um, and we're gonna be also needing to think about um, staff in our imaging facilities, our infusion facilities who are gonna be able to work with this population of patients who um, have dementia, may not understand a lot of things going on with their care. So a lot of um, big questions that we're gonna try to get at from different angles in our presentations to you today. So um, to take a closer look about this diagnostic question, I'm gonna turn the discussion over to Dr. Greg Day.
2: Thanks, Tammy, very much appreciated. As we think about how do we make that transition from care to cure, it's important to have a good understanding about what the benefits are of timely and accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, particularly in a clinical setting. And- Frankly, I think the number one benefit simply comes from talking with our patients and their family members. They want to know why they have memory problems that are continuing to progress over years. Early access to this information can also do some pretty positive things for patients that we might overlook and that we might deprive them of if we don't provide an early and accurate diagnosis. Access to this information can provide patients with early access to support systems and interventions that could actually improve their quality of life for them and for their family members. It also gives patients an opportunity to communicate their preferences, particularly those relating to advanced care directives. At an early phase of the illness at a time where they're really able to process this information and to make their opinions and impressions known. Finally, and I think even more increasing importance as we move forward in this field, it gives patients an opportunity to be active participants in clinical research including other research studies using other novel disease-modifying therapies. As we move into the era of disease-modifying therapy though, we have another really compelling reason to focus on early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in its symptomatic forms. And that's merely that the current evidence suggests that disease-modifying therapies are going to be most effective when they're initiated early in the symptomatic disease course. This statement, this opinion, is in line with what the American Academy of Neurology has said in a recent report, concluding that there are insufficient grounds right now to warrant offering aducanumab to patients who have moderate or advanced dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, or to patients without biomarker evidence of brain beta amyloid. This statement also aligns with updated aducanumab prescribing information. And that's that treatment, if it's going to be provided, should be initiated in patients with the mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia stage of disease, early symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. There really is no safety or efficacy data at earlier or later stages in the illness. And so we need to bear that in mind as we think about matching our patients to treatment. So how are mild cognitive impairment and dementia diagnosed in the clinical environment? Well, first and foremost, it remains a clinical diagnosis. This requires a comprehensive evaluation. It's an evaluation that's going to pull information in from multiple sources. Now, the most valuable one is, of course, the patient in the room. But in a memory clinic, we also really need a family, a friend, or someone that knows that patient well enough to attest and elaborate on the history of memory or thinking problems. It's also important that we obtain a complete medical, family and medication history, recognizing that other things can interfere and can affect memory problems and memory function and might bias us or help us in coming to the right, most accurate diagnosis. A neurological examination is key. We're looking for abnormalities that might suggest a different kind of problem here uh, and of course uh, trying to really get a full scope of the problem and we will often use paper and pencil tests of memory and thinking. Sometimes this is done at the bedside using a screening test, more often done in a formal context with formal neuropsychological testing. Structural neuroimaging and serum tests are also important, again with the main role of excluding other contributors or causes of memory loss. If we look back to the American Academy of Neurology practice parameter on talking about diagnosis of dementia, really this is all that's necessary to establish the right diagnosis. So the only testing that we need to do in patients when we're considering this diagnosis and we can use MRI being the preferred modality or possibly a non-contrast head CT, thyroid studies in the blood, as well as vitamin B12 measures. So let's talk about symptomatic Alzheimer disease and how that's diagnosed. Well, as Dr. Benzinger has already told us, Alzheimer disease is a disease of plaques and tangles in the brain. It's a pathologic state. And if we look at a brain on autopsy, we'll see evidence of a buildup of beta amyloid in its plaque formation, as well as tau neuropathology, including formation of neurofibrillary tangles. The ultimate consequence of the buildup of this pathology is that we have neuronal loss, synaptic dysfunction, brain atrophy, if we're looking at neuroimaging or if we're holding a brain in our hands, and if we're looking at a patient, a pretty predictable clinical state. The criteria for diagnosis of symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, again, emphasizes the clinical examination and clinical history. We're looking for a patient with symptoms that have begun insidiously, that ultimately are progressive across time, usually across months and years. Initially and often, the most prominent cognitive deficits are going to be evident from history and possibly on examination, and these deficits may include memory problems or other things could be orientation, executive dysfunction other problems that could be affecting day-to-day life and these symptoms are going to emerge absent substantial evidence of other neurodegenerative dementias or another concurrent active neurological disease or non-neurological problem that would be sufficient to account for these problems what we're looking at here is trying to determine is the patient at the early symptomatic phase of the illness that is with mild cognitive impairment or very mild dementia or are they further along in the disease course once that's done, we really need to focus on confirming the presence of Alzheimer's disease pathology. Right now we really have three tools in our armamentarium to do this. The first, and perhaps the one that the audience here is most familiar with, is amyloid PET imaging, molecular based PET imaging. And what we're seeing here in this picture, the top picture is an amyloid PET scan in a 77 year old woman who has mild Alzheimer's, symptomatic Alzheimer's disease with a mini mental status examination score of 24. So some pretty mild symptoms. The lower scan, a negative scan, we're not seeing that uptake extending out to the cortex, is from an 82-year-old gentleman who's cognitively healthy. He's a control in a research study, has a mini mental status examination of 30. PET scans, amyloid PET scans in life, compare well to autopsy findings, with a sensitivity for detecting Alzheimer's disease and specificity over 80%. And there's a number of positives when we think about an amyloid PET scan. One, there are multiple FDA approved tracers available. There's selection, there's competition, there's improved access. Amyloid PET scans tend to be well tolerated by our patients. There's a relatively standardized approach to interpretation and a lot of evaluation that's gone into improving that so that we can continue to deliver excellent results and accurate interpretations. And we know that the findings from Amyloid PET scans can influence management, management in the clinic. The downsides relate to the high cost. Um, as well, at the current state, the Center for Medicaid Services does not provide coverage for this, and therefore it can be a burden and a cost that's borne by our patients. To perform an amyloid PET scan and to perform it well requires specific infrastructure, not only a PET PET scanner, but also the tracer and the facilities that are capable of of producing that tracer and shipping it to the site. We do know that the availability of this infrastructure is very much region specific, and unfortunately, there are large segments of the United States, and particularly large segments outside of North America, where that infrastructure is simply not accessible. The second option at our disposal, is a lumbar puncture, including cerebral spinal fluid measures of Alzheimer's disease biomarkers. The top three ones measured currently are amyloid beta, one of its subunits, and total and phosphorylated tau. There's a long established history of using these biomarkers to improve diagnostic accuracy. We know right now that core spinal fluid biomarkers of neurodegeneration are strongly associated with Alzheimer's disease, with a really high signal to control ratio in multiple meta- meta-analyses. There's also a number of pros associated with spinal fluid, spinal fluid assessment and Alzheimer's disease biomarkers. One, and maybe most important to our patients, there is coverage for the, for the cost associated with this, both for the cost of the lumbar puncture and also for the cost of the test measures through CMS. Capacity wise, this test is also widely available and lumbar punctures can be safely performed by neurologists, radiologists, other advanced practice providers or clinicians. Again, as I've said, there's also a long history of use of these biomarkers in the research and clinical setting. The downsides, lumbar punctures continue to be perceived as invasive, both by many practicing clinicians and providers, but also by our patients. There are relative and absolute contraindications to a lumbar puncture. That includes use of antiplatelet agents or anticoagulants and other health issues that may overlap with our patients with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. The test characteristics also vary by sampling and measurement method. And so we need standardization there. You really need to know how you're collecting it and where you're sending it. And there are complications that can evolve after a lumbar puncture, including things like a post-dural puncture headache. There's one other possible, uh, possible means to do this, and that may be by measuring ratios of amyloid beta in the blood. Emergent research, and this is recent research, suggests that plasma measures have good concordance with amyloid PET and spinal fluid findings, and therefore may be a valid and useful way of evaluating for Alzheimer's disease pathology in our patients. The pros associated with this are pretty obvious. Blood tests are common. They're non-invasive, and widely available, can really be ordered and performed by almost any health provider. And there are measures now that are CLIA-approved, and so increasing standardization. The downsides again relate to cost. Without without knowledge about coverage for this yet, we're not sure who's gonna bear the cost, and the cost can be substantial. Test performance, as with spinal fluid, also varies highly by the assay and measurement method. And right now, there are no CLIA-approved measures of other biomarkers, such as tau. And perhaps most limiting, We're waiting for those validation studies that include typical clinic patients to show that the results from our research population really stand up and that this can be used more broadly. So what are the implications when we take all these findings together for our practicing neurologists? I think we have a role and an important role in educating our referring clinicians. We want to encourage those referring clinicians to proactively inquire about memory loss, to take subjective complaints seriously in their patients. And we want to help them to pick the right basic tests to do before patients come to see us. That might include cognitive screening, blood tests, and certainly some form of structural imaging. We also want to work on adapting our own practice models and include encouraging our colleagues to do the same. We need to innovate, use our telemedicine services to extend our reach, to be able to provide diagnostic services to patients outside of our central areas. We also want to help to establish multidisciplinary practices, learning from what our colleagues have done in other fields, so that we're better better prepared to meet the demand that's coming with assessing patients and ensuring they get safe treatment. We also want to stay current on access to biomarker tests. This means knowing the regulatory status, where approvals are, what coverage decisions pertain to, particularly with PET and plasma-based biomarkers. And we want to promote and facilitate access to biomarker measures in local facilities for qualified patients. It's a tough task, but one that we're looking forward to seeing move forward and now looking forward to address the role of imaging in following patients who are treated for Alzheimer's disease with a disease modifying therapy with a focus on surveillance for ARIA. Jerry, please share your
3: perspectives. Great. Thank you, Dr. Gay. So I will be focusing on the imaging challenges we face with the implementation of this novel and the first disease modifying therapy for Alzheimer's disease. Now, With this therapy, there's a high demand on imaging studies and this includes both the imaging required to ensure patient selection as well as the routine surveillance imaging once the patient begins therapy. This new class of drug described broadly as anti-amyloid agents effectively removes amyloid from the brain as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Now this amyloid removal can be seen both qualitatively as we see on the left side of the slide on visual inspection on these amyloid PET scans, but also quantitatively on the right-hand side of the slide where we're looking at the graph of SUVR. Over time, as patients are treated, the response with amyloid removal is dose-dependent. So at higher doses, we have greater removal of amyloid. And the final steady state dose of drug is actually 10 milligrams per kilogram the mobilization and removal of amyloid from the vessel wall of the brain leads to a transient state of disrupted vascular integrity causing the leakiness of vessels and thus the edema and micropatechial changes can occur which we'll discuss and are described as aria now this transient state of leakiness is followed by a phase of vessel wall reconstitution Re-establishing the wall integrity. This physiology of amyloid mobilization is the reason why aria is most commonly encountered early on during treatment. Now, the aria is broken down into two basic types. We designate an E-type to reflect edema or effusion, and an H-type to be the hemosiderin process. In general, aria you'll see typically resolves is a transient process without permanent neurologic or imaging changes. At the same time, the majority of cases of ARIA are not associated with any symptoms. And the primary risk factors for developing ARIA are number one, dose of drug, and number two, the patient's APOE status. Now here's a typical example of ARIA-E. On the far left slide, we see the patient at baseline. These are T2 flare sequences. Following the administration of agent, the patient developed these areas of edema. Now, this was detected on this routine surveillance scan. The patient had no symptomatology whatsoever. Um, Given the fact that in this particular trial, this was classified as a moderate, this patient was not dosed through, and subsequently on follow-up, we note that there's resolution of these imaging findings. We can see that when looking at aria E, it reflects a combination of either edema, if that leakiness occurs within the vessel parenchyma, or a sulcal effusion, if that leakiness is incurred in the leptomeninges. Likewise, for aria H, which is going to be detected with a blood sensitive sequence, namely a GRE sequence, those blood products, when occurring within the brain parenchyma, will be seen as microhemorrhages and then if on the surface of the brain within the leptomeninges will be seen as superficial areas of uh, siderosis. Now in this graph what we're looking at is the typical dose administration for these agents for example aducanumab. On the y-axis we see the patient starts out at 1 mg per kg and then is slowly titrated to the steady state dose of 10. And the idea there is we're affording the vasculature time to accommodate to the removal of the amyloid and to give the vessels some time to reconstitute their integrity so we have a lower incidence of aria. What you'll see is that within the trials, MR imaging was performed at specific times. For example, after baseline and following treatment with both several doses of both one and three MIGs per kg, before advancing to six milligrams per kilogram, the patient would undergo an MRI scan to determine whether there was aria. Now, depending on the extent of aria, that information is used to determine whether, if it's mild, you'll dose through the aria, or in some cases, moderate or severe, you would actually stop. And in trials, it varied from trial to trial what would be done for moderate. Now, in the following slide, we have simply broken out the two main groups of individuals, ApoE non-carriers, which is the lower bar, and the higher bar is the ApoE4 carriers. So this is a very important point because knowing the ApoE4 status of the patient will give you insight to their likelihood of developing aria, which is significantly higher with the ApoE4 carriers. So these are time points where patients are being dosed with agent. And you can see there's going to be an incremental increase in agent at each of these points. And for example, MRI is being recommended prior to T5, which is the fifth dose, as the patient is about to escalate to six milligrams per kilogram. Now, in brief, when we look at the incidence of aria, um, Dr. Bensinger outlined that the key risk factors, again, are ApoE carrier status as well as drug dose, and overall about a third of the patients will experience um, this ARIA E condition. Now, turning to ARIA H, referring to microhemorrhages and siderosis, the main point to be made here has to do with the fact that we're talking about low bar microhemorrhages and siderosis we are not talking about the microangiopathic changes or senescent mineralization that occurs in the deep gray matter. We are focused on the low-bar microhemorrhages, which are the characteristic features that you'd expect and see in cerebral amyloid angiopathy. So now the majority of individuals who had aria were asymptomatic, but when patients were symptomatic, The symptoms range from headaches to dizziness and nausea. So in trials, there were two metrics used to determine whether a patient would continue with dosing or undergo dose escalation as opposed to undergoing a stop in drug administration. And the first was the presence of symptoms. At any point in time, if a patient develops symptoms, that would be reason not to continue dosing. At the same time, that would be a reason, oftentimes, to perform an MR scan to evaluate for the potential development of aria. The other metric determining whether a patient would continue with dosing or undergo dose escalation was the presence of aria and its severity. Now, when classified as mild to moderate, in most cases, those individuals would be dosed through. However, if there was severe aria or symptomatology, the patient would not be dosed. Typically, the patient would undergo then a follow-up scan to demonstrate resolution or stability of ARIA-H or resolution of the ARIA-E. So, in summary, if a patient has symptoms, treatment is suspended. And if the patient is asymptomatic, it depends on the severity of the ARIA to determine whether they will continue with treatment. In terms of ARIA monitoring protocols, Obviously, there would be a tremendous demand on the imaging medical system. Fortunately, we're able to use a pared-down imaging protocol to evaluate these patients, consisting namely of three basic sequences. Number one, the T2 flare to help us identify the presence of ARIA-E. Number two, a gradient recalled echo sequence, allowing us to detect the hemosiderin products. And finally, a diffusion-weighted scan for purposes of problem solving. Finally, the presence of a standardized or structured reporting protocol is useful to ensure that the radiologist pays particular attention to addressing the potential presence of the ARIA-E and ARIA-H, which of course is important to help the clinician determine what will be done with the patient's dosing paradigm. Now, we do have this classification schema to help us differentiate the different types of ARIA and its severity in terms of ARIA-E and ARIA-H, both microhemorrhages and superficial siderosis, are graded into mild, moderate, and severe categories. And this information, of course, will be important to the clinician when making the decision on whether to continue dosing the patient. And in closing, I want to touch on the interpretation of these ARIA findings, which can be quite varied and can mimic a variety of disease conditions. So, In that regard, I'd like to show four separate examples of ARIA-E. In each of these cases, the patient was asymptomatic and these findings were noted on routine surveillance imaging. On the top row, we have the patient findings following the administration of treatment, whereas on the bottom row, we have their baseline scan. And in the first case, we can see that there's an area of sulcal enhancement that could mimic the presence of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. In the second case, we have a large zone of temporal lobe involvement, which could mimic something such as either a venous thrombosis or a temporal cerebritis related to HSV. In the third case, we have biocipital involvement that could be quite similar to press. And in the fourth example, we have an area that could represent an infarct. So in these cases, we would correlate clinically to ensure that the patient, for example, in the first case was not having uh, severe headaches with nuchal rigidity um, or is not having seizure activity. And so these are the key features that are important to help us differentiate uh, these imaging findings from true pathologic findings. So now I turn it back to Dr. Benzinger to give us our closing comments.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Barakas, Dr. Day. This has been um, really great um, discussion today. Um, I just want to summarize for our audience um, to, to think about the overlapping signs and symptoms that neurodegenerative dementias can have and how important it is um, that neuroimaging can be involved to help us with that diagnostic accuracy. Um, You know, we talked a lot about getting those baseline tests, such as a structural MRI, which is actually going to become, we now understand, much more important in the future as we'll also be able to um, use that as our baseline for the development of ARIA, um, as we've seen here. So we know this is a a huge problem in the United States that's coming forward here as well as around the world. Um, And hopefully, um, by participating in this, Activity, those of you in the audience will feel a little bit better prepared to help take care of this important patient population. Thank you so much, Greg and Jerry, for your insights, and I hope all of you have found this activity informative and useful for your practice.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KZA 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen.